Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Happy Lord's Day to all of you. As we uh, begin our sermon, uh, let's uh, turn in our Bibles to uh, John chapter 12. And we're going to be looking at verses uh, 20 to 36 here this morning. As you do so, uh, how many of you saw the powers of righteousness triumph over darkness last night there? You see that? So anyways, uh, that was a good way to segue into this morning, you know, but uh, some of these themes will overlap here this morning. But uh, the the last time we were together, uh, we looked at Palm Sunday, or what is commonly referred to as the the triumphal entry. And as you recall, this was the Sunday uh, before Jesus went to the cross as he intentionally uh, presented himself as the Messiah riding through Jerusalem on a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. And if you recall, the the people um, proclaimed him uh, to be the prophesied Messiah to come. You know, Jesus' popularity at this time was at an all-time high, and the Pharisees' plan to assassinate him seemed to be in jeopardy. I could tell I went off there, huh? So... I still talk loud, so you can probably hear me anyways, but uh, I don't know why I have this, huh? I don't really need this, do I? So it's just like a, you know, a prop, but anyways. Um, but anyways, the Pharisees' uh, plan to assassinate Jesus seemed to be in jeopardy, and that's when they said the words uh, that we ended with last time that would prove truer than even they could have ever imagined, and that was this. Look. The whole world has gone after him. Well, you know, since those words were spoken, probably about a day or so has passed uh, since then. And so we want to pick up the narrative right where we left off uh, our last time together. And uh, so I want to read the passage here in John 12, uh, starting there in verse 20. Then we will pray and then we'll start to take a look at this passage Okay, verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. 
And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we uh, dig into the word this morning, we pray that the focus would be on Jesus and what he is about to do, uh, the words that he had spoken, and the timeless truths that are found here in this passage. We pray, Lord, that we would cling to Jesus, that we would understand what it means to follow him, the nature of discipleship and, uh, and salvation. And we pray, Lord, that you would uh, help us to understand this well this morning and to live out the truths that we find there. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's, uh, let's head into our passage here this morning. I don't seem to be able to advance the slides here, fellas. Uh, is it that it's not on? Is that what it is? Oh, maybe that's what it was. Maybe it's because it's not on. Anyways, uh, we're going to take a look at this passage here, and uh, we want to start there by looking in verses uh, 20 uh, to 22. And this is the setting uh, for uh, today's passage. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. You know, John, as we start this passage here, presents an ironic twist in the narrative. You know, just as the Jewish leaders are plotting the demise of Jesus, here we find that Gentiles are seeking him out. I want to talk about these Greeks uh, for a second who were present for the Passover as participants. Uh, Remember the Passover, that's what they're all there for in Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, that uh, event is is, uh, less than a week away. But uh, this term for Greeks here uh, refers to Gentiles who come from Greek-speaking places, whether it's near or, or far. And the fact that they were there to participate in the Passover shows that they were either proselytes, a proselyte was uh, a convert, a full convert to Judaism, uh, or at the very least, they were those who were sympathetic to Judaism and thus attended uh, Jewish feasts such as Passover, where they would be able to participate in the court of the Gentiles. These, uh, these who were not full proselytes were known as the devout or God-fearers. By the way, you know what, what the difference was between a God-fearer and a full proselyte? The God-fearers uh, could not be full proselytes because they didn't want to be circumcised, right? And you could understand why. And so they were, they, they were sympathetic to the religion, but they didn't want to be circumcised, so they were not considered full participants. Now, although we're not given any particulars, uh, we are simply told that these unnamed Gentile worshipers, they find Philip, and they ask him to introduce them to Jesus, And considering what has just taken place, 
with Jesus riding through town on a donkey while all the people there shouted out praises of Hosanna to him, proclaiming Jesus to be the coming Messiah, you can see this is a bold request, right? Everybody probably wanted to see Jesus. Everyone wanted an interview with him because he is right now at the height of his popularity. He had just raised Lazarus from the dead a chapter earlier, and people are proclaiming him the one to come. So they asked Philip, knowing that he was close to Jesus, to set up a face-to-face meeting with him so that they could ask him some questions. By the way, in a similar way, we are ambassadors for Jesus as well. A lot of people that we know don't really know Jesus and are going to ask us to introduce him to them. Well, Philip takes this request to Andrew, and together they go to tell Jesus about it. And the fact that all of this is going on seems to suggest that this happened on a different day than the triumphal entry, because things seem to have settled down a bit, right? And Jesus isn't around. So maybe it's a day, maybe a day or so after uh, that, you know, that high day. Verse 23, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is interesting because we're not told what Jesus' answer was to Andrew and Philip's request, but we are told what his response was. Now, here's something as you read this, right? Did Jesus totally ignore the request of these Greek people? And instead, he is answering them. Now, see, the them is kind of a, a tricky thing, right? Is he just answering them like Philip and Andrew? Right? Like, so they come to this request, and, and, and he just kind of ignores the request, and he just starts talking to them. Or did John skip Jesus' response and go straight to his answer to them, the Greeks? Meaning, you know, we, we kind of cut out the unimportant part, and Jesus just starts addressing, you know, these Greek people. I think it's probably this latter scenario, but it still begs the question as to why John included the detail. Uh, this detail, when these Greeks are mentioned, right, in this verse, and then they just disappear from the narrative. We are never, never even talking about them again. So why would you talk about these Greek people coming to Jesus or wanting to see Jesus and then just forget about them? Well, a good guess uh, might be that John was purposely foreshadowing Gentiles coming to Christ in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant promise. And you remember in the Abrahamic covenant, the, the um, culmination of that promise is in Genesis 12, verse 3. In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's us, right? The gospel would, would go forth, right, because of Jesus. And instead of just going to this nation of Israel, it would go out to the Gentile nations and people from every tribe, nation, and language would, would get saved uh, and be blessed through Abraham. So these Gentiles uh, symbolically represent the world seeking salvation from Jesus, and this would be the hint to the readers of this gospel that the time for Jesus' death has arrived. This language, by the way, should sound familiar to John's readers. Five times previously in this gospel... John had mentioned the hour, or my hour, or his hour, which was a specific reference to the pre-appointed time of his death, 
which would be followed by his resurrection and then his exaltation back to heaven. And when you think of, you know, these three events, even though they're three separable events, you want to think of them as one because that's the way that John tends to group them. The death, the resurrection, and the ascension or the exaltation. So uh, I, I would have put this on a slide for you, but to be honest with you, I really struggle with these slides and uh, trying to put these verses up here. So if you could just, if you want to flip in your Bible, you can. But if not, just listen to me because I want to just make this point. In John chapter 2, verse 4, listen about the hour. And Jesus said to her, the woman, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. That's at the wedding, you remember, Cana of Galilee. John chapter 7, verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, talking about the authorities, but no one laid a hand on him, referring to Jesus, because his hour had not yet come. And then John chapter 8, verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. So until now, the hour was always future, right? It's, it, it's not here yet. It hasn't come. But now, Jesus says, it has come. The hour has come. And so Jesus is telling us that the pre-appointed time for his death has arrived. Now, isn't it reassuring to know that God really is sovereign and that nothing or no one could have prevented this event from happening. Nobody could have thwarted God's plan for the crucifixion to happen. So think about it. Jesus isn't going to the cross accidentally, as some have tried to portray, or as a victim of circumstance, as some have tried to portray. But no, he's going there by the predetermined plan of God, a plan that he had before he even created the universe. You know, every moment of our lives is already planned out by God and is unfolding as we live each day. You know, we, we've mentioned this before, but it's always, you know, it bears repeating. Your time to die has also been pre-appointed. And so you are invincible until the day that God has pre-appointed for you to die. And you know, that, that should give us a sense of peace, a sense of confidence and trust in Christ, knowing that he's totally in control of our lives and that things are not just haphazardly happening to us, right? We don't have to, you know, worry about whether I should go to the mission field because it's so scary and I might die. Well, yeah, you might, and that might be the pre-appointed time, Right? Uh, you don't have to worry about going into a situation, you know, where, you know, your security, you know, might be in jeopardy. Like, I, I might not make enough money to support my family or, or these kinds of things, and, and therefore we're going to starve to death and die. Well, again, God has pre-appointed the day in which you're going to die, and it's not because of something, some bad decision you made that's going to hasten your death and you are going to die prematurely, you know. And, and again, Understand, that's not an argument to go jump off a cliff and see if, you know, if you're going to die, right? We're not saying that. It's just make decisions without fear, 
with confidence that God is sovereign and that if you think this is what God wants you to do, then do it and don't be afraid because the pre-appointed time of your death is already set in stone, right? So live boldly. So Christ's glorification starts with the cross and it ends with his exaltation back to heaven. This is what he's talking about, his glorification. You know, Jesus speaks to this latter event later in his high priestly uh, prayer in John 17, verse 5. You remember these words he spoke? He says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So think about it. From start to finish, Christ's glory is going to be displayed. And, and in the most improbable of places, in a crucifixion. And so from this point forward in this gospel, we start to hone in on this hour, moving ever so closer to the most important event ever in human history, and that is the cross. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies... It remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus makes explicit what was implicit in his language about being glorified in verse 23. He uses an agrarian illustration that his audience would have immediately picked up on. And that is this. Until a seed is buried in the ground, dies, and decomposes, It cannot bear fruit and therefore produce a crop. So think about it. If the seed were simply to remain as a seed, you know, we buy seeds in a packet, right, at the supermarket, right, or or, our local nursery. If it just stays in the package, guess what? That's going to be its final condition. So the principle is somewhat paradoxical, paradoxical that fruitfulness comes through, what, death. So you can, you can easily see the point that Jesus is making. Much like in the case of a seed whose death is the beginning of life that thus produces a great crop, in the same way, Jesus' death, again, just a week away, is going to bring forth an abundant harvest. His death is going to bring life to the world. It's strange, right? So if Jesus doesn't die, it'll be equivalent to taking a seed and just keeping it in the package, not planting it, right? You'll get no fruit, you'll get no harvest. But if Christ dies, there is going to result in a whole harvest of souls that are saved. So to put it plainly, Jesus' death is primary to his glorification that he speaks about in the previous verse. And, you know, by the way, uh, what's interesting is Paul takes the same kind of illustration of a seed dying, but he applies it in a very different way to our future resurrection body in 1 Corinthians 15, 36 to 38. So whether you're talking about death in the case of Jesus, and and now we're going to see how it applies to us, or in the case of resurrection. We have both of those found in Scripture. Verse 25. Whoever loses his life, whoever loses his life, I'm sorry, 
Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Here's a saying uh, that is found in the Synoptic Gospels as well, and it's the application of the seed analogy that was just given in verse 24. Jesus is making a transition from the efficacy of his own death to how his death is to practically impact his followers, meaning that it is the same for Christians, for us, as it is for Christ. There can be no life until there is death. So I want you to notice the contrast here is between the one who loves his life and the one who hates his life. This is a Semitic idiom that shouldn't be taken absolutely but simply refers to what is a person's fundamental preference. So, you know, don't think of it as literally loving versus literally hating as it's that strong. We're just talking about preferences, right? So the person who loves his life represents the person who loves himself more than he loves anything else in his life. It doesn't mean he can't love other things or other people, but what is the supreme object of his love? The answer to that is himself. So self is the idol. This is the person who cares more about life in the here and now as opposed to life in the hereafter. He's the guy who lives for today and doesn't care about tomorrow, right? He's more concerned about what is happening to me right now. Well, this idolatrous focus on one's life will terminate in losing the best part of his life, his soul, which is shorthand for eternal damnation. Remember the question that Jesus asked in Mark 80, uh, chapter 8, 36 to 37. You remember this question? For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his what? soul. For what can a man give in return for his soul? Why would anyone be so short-sighted so as to invest all that he has in something that will not last, right? It's like the, the Randy Alcorn book that we're reading through, putting all your money invested in confederate money that's going to be worthless, right, a, a short time from now. Even if you could have the best that this world could offer for the rest of your life. Let's say you live 75 years old. Let's say you, you could live 80 years old. And many of us are you know, um, you know, getting closer to that end age rather than the beginning age. But let's say you could have the best that this world could offer up until about 75, 85 year, years of age. What, would, you, would you take that deal and forfeit eternal life with Christ in heaven. Well, tragically, many have and many will. Well, let me ask you that are here this morning, does that describe any of you that are putting all of your investment in the here and now? Are you living for the things of today, short-sighted of eternal life with Christ in heaven? Are you forfeiting your soul for temporal pleasures? Things that seem fun now, seem the things, things that seem like it's just uh, the end-all, be-all now, 
you know, pleasure, earthly riches, you know, comfort, whatever kind of worldly pursuit, are you pursuing those things now to the exclusion of your soul? Are you willing to forfeit the best to get what you think is fun now or worthwhile now? That's a tragedy if that is true. On the other hand is the one who hates his life, meaning that the self is not the end-all, be-all, that living for the glory of self is not the goal of his life. This person is more concerned of the life to come than his life in the here and now. Now understand, this isn't meant to be just a generic statement like uh, just hating you know, life in general, right? Just hating my life in general, but that there is someone greater to live for in my life right now. Notice the parallel statement in Mark chapter 8, 34 to 35, where he says, where he says this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So Jesus is talking about those who deny themselves. They, they die to themselves, right? Because they know that living for Jesus and his interests are better and more worthy than their own. Now, of course, as I say that, this describes the direction and intention of your life, not the perfection of it, right? None of us perfectly denies uh, ourselves and perfectly takes up our cross daily, right? But that's our intention. That's the direction of our life. Such people love the things of the Lord to such a degree that the pursuits, uh, that the things, you know, the, the pursuits of this life um, would seem to be hatred by comparison, right? And so it means that at the end of the day, you'd be willing to give up your life for the sake of Christ because your life is not your own, but you recognize it belongs to him, right? You're not in love with yourself. And those who are willing to sacrifice their lives in the present will actually begin, strangely enough, to enjoy eternal life to come right now, in the here and now, and then blessings will culminate in the future forevermore. So the main message that Jesus is communicating is that you need to die to yourself in order for there to be the emergence of eternal life. Okay, Eternal life later only comes through dying right now. J.C. Ryle, as usual, had this penetrating insight when he said this. He said, He that would be saved must be ready to give up life itself if necessary in order to obtain salvation. He must bury his love of the world with its riches, honors, pleasures, and rewards with a full belief that in so doing, he will reap a better harvest both here and hereafter. He who loves the life that now is so much that he cannot deny himself anything for the sake of his soul will find at length that he has lost everything. He later goes on to say this. He says, to serve Christ in name and form is easy work and satisfies most people. But to follow him in faith and life demands more trouble 
then the generality of men will take about their souls. He, on the contrary, who who is ready to cast away everything most dear to him in this life, if it stands in the way of his soul, and to crucify the flesh with its affections and lusts, will find at length that he is no loser. In a word, he loses, his losses will prove nothing in comparison to his gains. Look, if you love this world and all that it has to offer more than you love Christ, then you are the one who loves his life and you will lose it one day eternally. You might be sitting here as a professing believer You've gone to church your whole life and uh, you don't really have a real relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, you know about him. You even profess faith in him, but he really only has a place in your life every Sunday. And the rest of the week is for you and for your pursuits with the emphasis on you, right? Well, let me just warn you. This passage is staring you right in the face and you better search your heart to see whether you are really the one who loves his life and will eventually lose his soul. Our world is tragically full of people who love their present lives so much that their main goal is to make themselves even more comfortable and to pursue the idol of happiness. Yeah, happiness has become an idol for many people. And because of that, eternity doesn't seem like such a big deal. No one who is unwilling to die to themselves and to sin should ever expect that they're going to benefit from Christ's death. Right? You might have an intellectual faith, but not a real one. This is what's describing a real one. Verse 26, to go on. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What does losing your life for Jesus' sake look like? Well, here it is succinctly. Serving and following Jesus. Now, think about what that meant for Jesus' followers and the original hearers you know, of this when it, when it was happening at the time. Jesus is going to the cross in less than a week. So serving and following Jesus and being where he is isn't going to be a party, right? Uh, it's going to include hardship, self-denial, and very possibly martyrdom, right? But with the joyous expectation that eternal reward will follow. But things are going to get tough for these guys in just a very short time. And, and you know, by the way, you know, there is, there is suffering and then there is reward. But you know what is included in those eternal rewards? Honor from your heavenly Father. You know, how would you feel if your job sent out an email to every employee, you know, with your picture on there? And, uh, you know, commended you, employee of the month or whatever, for the excellent work that you did for the company. Um, you know, would you feel honored if that happened? 
you know, probably to some degree you would, right? Oh, dang, you know, I'm being honored by the company. I'm employee of the month, right? You, you might feel a sense of pride or, or honor. But you know what? It wouldn't take too long for you and everybody else to forget about that, right? A month or two later, next employee of the month or whatever, the next thing you know, nobody remembers that you were the employee of the month and that you received honor, and you probably don't really think about it either. Because man's honor simply just doesn't last very long. But that's not true with the honor that comes from God the Father. Because that honor is sure and it's everlasting. You know, especially in our day and hour, you know, the world has contempt for biblical Christianity. And it may intimidate you when others laugh at you or they call you foolish or unintelligent. Or here's the big one today. Christians are unscientific right? You hear that all the time. And we're just out of step with the culture. We're evil, right? Because of the things that we believe. But just remember, there is coming a day when, when the Father will honor you for serving him, and it will all be worth it in the end. Who cares what other people say about you today? Care about what the Father is going to say to you one day. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this, pers- for this purpose I have come to this hour. You know, the thought of going to the cross and facing the appointed hour was certainly not easy for Jesus. You know, he makes it clear that he was troubled a word that communicates the idea of being frightened or terrified. I don't know if that shocks you to hear Jesus talking like this, but this is the language that he's using. So although Jesus understands that the hour for him to be glorified has come, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy and that Jesus just you know, shows up and effortlessly accomplishes his Father's will. You know, this is going to be tough. So paradoxically, although Jesus' death will bring him glory, it is also the cause of great trouble to his soul. You know, you might be tempted to think, what's the big deal? You know, haven't others had to face death? And some were very calm about, you know, the death that they, unbelievers, we've seen face death very calmly. We've seen people set themselves on fire, you know, while in a lotus position, and they don't seem to be that troubled by the prospect of dying. So, you know, isn't this a blight against Jesus that he fears death so much, right? You might be tempted to think that as as you hear him talking like this, but, you know, you have to understand, it's not the mere idea of dying, that is causing Jesus so much mental anguish. No, it's the thought of having all of mankind's sins placed upon him and consequently having to face his father's wrath because of those sins. That's what's going on here. Not the mere prospect of death, but the father's wrath because of our sins. This is where the gospel is, right? 
Jesus is not just going to suffer physical pain on the cross like the two thieves on either side of him. He is also going to experience God's unmitigated wrath in full as no one has ever experienced before. That was the main cause of why his soul was deeply troubled. This was going to be the biggest trial that Jesus was ever going to have to face in his life. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse uh, 7, we see this tension reflected in, in this verse. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. This wasn't going to be easy. And so when Jesus asked the question, and what shall I say? He, gives, he then gives a hypothetical prayer that he could pray. He could pray this, Father, save me from this hour. But immediately he rejects praying that kind of prayer. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. So Jesus knows that he must face this hour and he must persevere through it. But it's not going to be easy. And this, again, points to Jesus' true humanity, right? The struggle shows the true humanity of Christ and that his deity didn't override his humanity. He's not really going to suffer pain. He's God, right? He'll just make the pain go away. No, his deity is not going to override it, right? He's really going to feel God's wrath, right? So going to the cross is going to be a big deal for him. It really was a source of inner turmoil for Jesus. And even though he looked forward to this hour, he knew just how hard it was going to be shouldering the sins of mankind upon himself. Verse 28. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Jesus appropriately ends his prayer by asking that his father glorify his name. As we've already pointed out, in order for Jesus' prayer to be answered, it will require that he is obedient to his father's plan of redemption, which means his willingness to go to the cross. This is, by the way, one of the three instances in the Gospels that God speaks from heaven concerning the identity of his son, Jesus See if you remember the other one, the other two, right? One was Jesus' baptism, right? Where after coming out of the water, the Spirit descended upon him like a dove, and Matthew 3, 17 recorded this, and behold, the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. You guys remember that one? That's a, that's a very popular one. But there was also the time of Jesus's transfiguration you remember that event when his face shone like the sun and his clothes became bright white and there he met with Moses and Elijah right and Peter James and John his closest disciples were there present at the time as well and if you remember Peter was actually giving his recommendations for accommodations on the mount where they were, right? I think we'll make three tents here, one for Moses. Remember that that whole thing? And uh, in the middle of saying all of that, God interrupted Peter and said, 
in Matthew 17, verse 5, this is my beloved son with who I am well pleased. Listen to him. Those were the other two times. Well, in this passage, Jesus prays for the Father to glorify his name. And the Father answered Jesus that he has already glorified it and that he will glorify it again. Now think about how the Father was glorified in his Son at the incarnation itself. In John chapter 1, verse 14, we read this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his, what? Glory. Glory as of the Son, of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So in the incarnation, right? The Father had glorified his name. The Father would also receive glory whenever Jesus would perform miracles and signs that attested to his identity as God's Son. Remember in the last chapter, when Jesus was about to raise Lazarus from the grave, and he ordered Martha to take away the stone. You remember, she was reluctant to do so because of the awful stench that she knew was going to emerge um, you know, after housing a dead body for four days. But Jesus responded to her in 11 verse 40, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see what? The glory of God. So essentially, the entirety of Jesus' earthly ministry and the signs that he performed brought glory to the Father's name. And as we inch closer and closer to the hour of Christ's impending death on the cross, followed by his resurrection and his exaltation, his Father will glorify it again. And so this is a direct, audible answer to Jesus' prayer. Well, look at verses 29 to 30. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Only Jesus uh, was capable of understanding, not hearing, notice I said, but understanding God's voice. To the crowd that was gathered, it sounded like thunder, which, by the way, is often associated with God or his voice in the Old Testament. And I wouldn't be surprised if it actually did thunder when he spoke. But for the others that were in attendance, they could tell that something was being divinely communicated as well, but they just couldn't make out the words. Their guess was a little bit more accurate, but still incorrect, thinking, well, this has got to have been an angel that has just uh, spoken uh, to Jesus at this point. No, it was actually God the Father himself speaking directly to his son Jesus and actually directly answering his prayer. But regardless, you know, the people were supposed to get the not-so-subtle point that the sound that they were hearing was meant to be a divine confirmation concerning the person and work of Jesus, the Messiah. And the people certainly seemed to understand that something supernatural had just taken place. By the way, when we are told, um, when Jesus told the people that, you know, God's voice has come for your sake, not for mine, You know, he probably means that it was for your benefit that he spoke out loud, not for my benefit. Because if you recall, Jesus said something similar in the raising of Lazarus. Just after the stone was rolled away from the tomb, 
Jesus lifted up a verbal prayer to the Heavenly Father, and he said this. He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. You see the parallel ideas there? I think the point in both cases is that Jesus is the Son of God and he can hear directly from his Father at any time. He doesn't need God to speak out loud in an audible voice uh, for him to hear him from heaven. Or vice versa, Jesus doesn't have to speak out loud to God for him to hear Jesus. But what God said here wouldn't have been news to Jesus, right? About, you know, glorifying your name and answering his prayer because he enjoyed such intimate communion with his heavenly father. But it would have benefited the people that were there to hear God verbally confirming his ministry. But you're saying to me, well, but how could they have benefited if they couldn't even have understood what was said? That's a good point. But you got to understand, they all agreed something divine had taken place here. Uh, because they all heard something that was so unusual to, to interpret it as divine. So even though they didn't catch the message, and only Jesus did, it still would have alerted them to the fact that something important had taken place here and something important is about to take place. And one day, when they would look back on this event, they would remember what Jesus had told them that God had said during his, during his final week of his life. Looking back, on how the crucifixion forever changed human history, but brought God ultimate glory. Verses 31 to 33. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. There are two significant events that Jesus says is, is happening right now. Although we tend to think of them as end time or eschatological events. The first is the judgment of this world. Now, you know, your first response might be, but, you know, the judgment of the world couldn't have happened yet because isn't that the event that is associated with Jesus' second coming? I mean, didn't Jesus say earlier in this gospel, in chapter 5, verses 28 to 29, didn't he say, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment? Now, that that certainly couldn't have happened back in Jesus' day, right? That couldn't have been the case. These are not past events or now events? And the answer is, yes, you're absolutely correct. These are future events of judgment. But that doesn't preclude the fact that although Judgment Day hasn't happened as of yet, judgment actually began with Christ's first coming specifically at the cross. Now I want you to think about it. The world was guilty of rebellion against their creator, And they thought they were passing judgment on Jesus as they were crucifying him. But the fact of the matter was, Christ's death on the cross was actually passing judgment on them and and us. The sinful world, led by the devil, is now being formally condemned 
which then leads us to the next thought. Secondly, Jesus says, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now, the ruler of the world is a reference to Satan. But again, doesn't that sound like an end-time reality? I mean, doesn't that kind of remind you of Revelation chapter 20, verses 2 to 3, uh, where it says, And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the, length, the, the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended, and then after that he must be released for a little while? We know that hasn't happened yet either, right? That's a future event right? So what are we talking about here? Satan has not been bound. He's still active in, in, in our world. Well, what it does mean is that although it seems like Satan wins when Christ is crucified, right? He kills the Messiah, right? He, uh, the, the death of the Messiah has been accomplished. The very opposite is true. His death, which he thought was his victory, is actually his demise, Right? As J.C. Ryle points out, when Christ came to the cross, he did battle with Satan. He won a victory over him, stripped him of a large portion of his authority, and cast him out of a large portion of his dominion. You know, here's the interesting thing as you think about it. Maybe you don't think about it that much, but this is where it's emphasized here in this passage. Up until this time, the whole world, other than the nation of Israel, was under the dominion of Satan. Paganism and idolatry was the norm for all the other nations who were under Satan's control, but he was dethroned through the cross. The crucifixion was the beginning of the end for Satan's rule over this world. And so the emphasis in Jesus' preaching, you know, behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So both the world and its ruler are judged at the crucifixion, while at the same time, Jesus is glorified and salvation is now opened up, not just to the Jews, but to the rest of the world, the Gentiles as well. It is now secured. So Jesus uses very precise language to describe the manner in which he was going to die, predicting that he will be lifted up from the earth. This is similar to the discussion we had back when we started in verse 23. This world, I'm sorry, this word also means to exalt. And when used by other Bible writers, they use it of Christ's exaltation to heaven after his resurrection. So when you think of Jesus Christ being lifted up on the cross, you're to think of a continual lifting. He's lifted up on the cross He's lifted up at the resurrection and then all the way back up to heaven in the ascension. That's why the New Testament uh, sometimes connects the concepts of Christ's death with him being exalted. For example, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, listen to this connection. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, God has what? Highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Hebrews 1.3 does something similar there where it talks about Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
And then notice this. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He died and then he was exalted to the highest place. All this to say that in Jesus' death, his glory was displayed, but his death was also the root to his glorification. And it is through this wonderful plan of redemption that Christ will draw all people to himself. By the way, that's a reference to all people indiscriminately, meaning all kinds of people, whether Jews or Gentiles. Whereas before, God was working primarily with one nation of people, the nation of Israel, now the community of faith would be made up of all different kinds of people, both Jew and Gentile. And so because of Christ's death, large numbers of people from all the other nations would be freed from Satan's control and live for Christ. This, by the way, is similar to what he said earlier in John chapter 6, verse 44. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. You know, those whom the Father has chosen and then given to his Son will come because he will be drawn by the irresistible power of God's grace to salvation, what theologians call irresistible grace. Verse 34, So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? As you can tell, Jesus' answer didn't sit well with the crowd. They understood the gist of what Jesus was communicating, and, he, and here's the problem as they saw it. We know you're claiming to be the Messiah because you keep using the messianic title, Son of Man, for yourself, and yet you're predicting your own death. Well, the common understanding of the Messiah at this time, based on their reading of the Old Testament, was that the Messiah, was gonna, when he comes, he's going to remain forever. Now, where did they get that idea? Well, it's actually, you could find it all over the Old Testament, but think about passages like Ezekiel 37, verse 25. They shall dwell in the land that I give to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And notice, and David, my servant, shall be their prince. How long? Forever. And then, of course, we know Isaiah 9, 7, which I mentioned the last time we were together, of the increase of his government and of peace, There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So in any case, Judaism in Jesus' day believed that the scripture taught, rightly so, that the Messiah would be eternal that he would rule and reign in an eternal kingdom. You remember when we talked about the Davidic covenant last time and how all of those ideas fit in? And if he's going to do all of that, then how is he going to die? That doesn't make any sense. That's a very legitimate objection, right? So they asked Jesus, who is the son of man? Meaning, what kind of Messiah are you arguing for that can die? Think about it. This is the same objection that modern Jews are still asking today. How can Jesus be the Messiah when he died on a cross? That would make him accursed 
according to the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 21, 22 to 23. And if Jesus is the Messiah, where's the kingdom? Where's the Davidic kingdom, right? Now, of course, we know the answer to this conundrum is that the resurrection uh, is one part of the answer and then the second coming is the other part of that answer. Yes, he will remain forever. But first, he must accomplish redemption through his death. And this is also found in the Old Testament in Isaiah uh, chapters uh, 52 to 53. And then he will defeat death, right? Through his resurrection and return to heaven. Waiting for the time to return again to then set up that earthly Davidic kingdom that we talked about before, wherein he will rule and reign in righteousness. One last thing in verses 35 to 36. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Notice that Jesus just ignores their question. And instead, head straight to the real issue concerning himself, which is far more pressing in light of his coming crucifixion. There's no time for Jesus to clear up their speculation concerning their understanding of the Messiah. So Jesus basically tells the people that his time on earth is quickly coming to a close because the hour of his death has arrived. The light is only going to be here for a short while longer. So you know what you need to focus on? walking in that light while it's still possible to do so. In other words, commit yourself to Jesus right now. Live for him right now. Learn from him whatever you can right now because he's departing soon. And if you don't commit yourself to the light now, you may find yourself in complete darkness later on. But if they commit to walking in the light right now, while he's still here, Later, when the darkness comes, it won't overcome them. That's my last uh, and closing message to you all this morning as we get ready to finish here. You still have time to walk in the light, to become a son or daughter of light, but it's only for a little while longer. Soon the Lord will return and the opportunity to believe will be over with. And so for those of you here this morning who do not know Jesus, you are walking in darkness. And eventually that darkness will overtake you whether you want it to or not. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ today while there is still time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our passage here this morning and how it points us to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Touch the hearts of those who are present here today. Help everyone to examine their hearts and life to see if they know Jesus and if they don't, to turn to him in repentance and faith. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.